Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the 40 Minute Mentor. I just wanted to start today's episode with a quick word of thanks to all of you who've listened and supported the 40 Minute Mentor in 2019. It was a wonderful year. When we set the podcast up, we had no idea if it would be of interest or if it would take off and we've been blown away by the support we've had. Please do continue to support us, provide feedback, write reviews, share with your friends. It really does make the world of difference and will help us to continue to bring awesome guests. And we have a number of those lined up in the next 12 months. So thanks again. And yeah, uh, we're really excited to see what you think of the next few episodes, which we have already recorded. So on to today's guest and our first 40 minute mentor of 2020, who is the brilliant Ben Sanders. Ben is the MD for Europe at the Tech Scale Up Pollen, formerly known as Verve, which is one of the top 10 fastest growing UK scale ups and a global leader in word of mouth sales in the live entertainment and travel industries. As MD for Europe, Ben leads a team of over 100 people and he's played a key role in the growth of their marketplace, which has been turbocharged by a recent 70 million Series C funding round. Ben started his career in consulting at Bain & Company, where he spent just under five years before pivoting into fintech in 2014 with WorldPay. He was subsequently headhunted by the UK digital bank Pocket as their first COO in 2016 despite not having ever done a COO role before, and in that time achieved significant successes, scaling the team to over 70 people and winning multiple awards. Ben has achieved some very impressive feats during his career, and it was great to get a chance to talk to him about his diverse experiences. Some of the highlights from our chat include why Ben made the move from consulting into fintech and how he was able to adapt so quickly and achieve so much in such a short time frame, how Ben successfully made the jump into being a COO, despite never having done it before, and the lessons he learned from his time at Pocket, as well as his advice for others looking to make a step change in their own careers. And finally, Ben's guidance for building and leading high-performing teams, and his thoughts on the importance of getting culture right. Having talked to a lot of candidates who want to make the move from consulting into fintech, it was fascinating to hear Ben's experience and get his candid advice for people looking to make that same move that he did. There's also lots in here for scale-up leaders and entrepreneurs as he talks us through his journey in recent years. Ben is one of the nicest, most engaging and impressive people I know in tech. He was so open and honest during our conversation and shared some fantastic insights that I'm delighted to be able to share with you in this episode. And I really do hope that you'll get as much out of it as I did. So with all that said, please sit back, relax and enjoy my interview with Ben Sanders. Ben, thank you very much for being here today. No, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to see you. And I'd like to kick off this 40-minute mentor episode with the way we always like to start it, with an overview of your CV in 30 seconds. Yeah, sure, 30 seconds, cool. So I started my career in management consulting with Bain & Company. So I was hired by the Madrid office. I had work visa issues, so I moved to London. I was there for about five years across all different sectors. I then moved to WorldPay, a payments company, where I was in the e-commerce division doing strategic new product development. Then I moved to Pocket, which is a digital banking startup here in, the, in, in London. So I was there for about three years. And for the last year and change, I've been at a company called Pollen, which is a, an advocacy-based marketing and sales tool. Awesome. 
You've worked at some incredible companies. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into a few of these over the course of this conversation. Um, but I want to start back at the beginning. So you were born and raised in the US, Ben. Went to uni there. What uh, you, you told us a bit about, it sounded like a fortuitous stumbling upon London, but tell us a bit about kind of your thinking there and how, what, what brought you to Europe in the first instance. Yeah, fortuitous, random. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. So I, I had done grad school in the States in diplomacy. Like I was thinking about either going into something like the World Bank or oh, wow. the WTO. So I speak a few languages and... I was always interested in international stuff. So when I started thinking about management consulting as a career, I was like, why don't I do it in Spanish? Because that, that sounds why fun. Not? <laughs> yeah. And the only two offices at the time were Mexico City and Madrid. And I liked the idea of being in Europe. Just, you know, I was 23 at the time. So I just thought it'd be, it'd be fun. So I interviewed with Bay Madrid and I got it. I was there for about nine months while they tried to get my work visa. But it was right when the economic crisis hit. And I think Spain got hit harder than everybody yeah. else. So I had had a friend from New York, where I'm from, who had done his master's at LSE and was hired by Bain London. So he spoke to HR there, I met HR there, and then they managed to put me in London, but I had no ties to it. And it, it wasn't even some place I was actually thinking about coming to, but it's, it kind of worked out. And you've never looked back. <laughs> I've looked back quite a few times, but, but I'm still here. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, miss, I miss the sun. Yeah, <laughs> no, fair enough. And I know that you're a salsa dancer as well. I, I am a salsa dancer, yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to come back to that because yeah. I'm keen to hear a bit more about yeah. that. Yeah, I always happy to talk salsa. Awesome. Um, well, so you spent about five years at Bain then. What made you initially decide to, to move into consulting to start with? And I guess if you can answer that, but then also it'd be good to know why you felt it was the right time to leave when you did. So management consulting, you know, the thing is, I think, you know, this is the thing about mentoring. A lot of the time people find out about jobs through some type of network stuff, right? So what your parents do, what your parents' friends do, whatever. My dad's a doctor. My mom has done a bunch of things, but it's typically been in the legal profession. And so all their friends pretty much did what they did. So I didn't really know about like adult jobs that weren't, you know, doctor, you know, that kind of thing. So when I was in grad school, I just took a test, like one of these online career tests, and it came back, management consulting is what you should hey, do. Really? So then I just did a bit of research, and it sounded kind of cool because it played to the stuff I was interested in, which is like not doing any one thing, like constantly moving around, you know, problem solving, which I thought was cool. And it also, you know, like it was prestigious, the pay was pretty good, and, you know, there, there didn't seem to be downsides besides the lifestyle thing. And then like I bought a bunch of books, you know, I think probably this is, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So I think maybe, maybe the UK is caught up, but at the time there were a lot more career books in the US. So like Vault, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know if, if, if people still use that, but Vault had like a list of all the consultancies yeah. and Bain was the only one that was both high in prestige, but also high in lifestyle. Okay. You know, cause I wasn't going to go to like... One of the things for me is I've never wanted to work 70 hour weeks. Like I don't see any upside to that. So I was always trying to figure out a way to like maximize prestige or whatever with like lifestyle and, yeah. and Bain. I mean, I still worked really hard at Bain, but some of the horror stories I heard about from, you know, from, you know, uh, McKinsey in particular were, yeah. were crazy. So in terms of when I decided to leave, I think you should always leave a job when you feel like, you know, your learnings are kind of coming to an end at that place, or you just want to try something new. And I think management consulting... I mean, there are multiple points where you could jump off. A lot of people leave after the analyst thing where they've gotten the stamp on their, their uh, CV and then they go. Most people or a lot of people leave like immediately post like MBA promotion of them. And then the ones who stay, they stay because they really love it. And I never really loved it. Like I thought that there were some interesting things, but I didn't like the intensity. I didn't like the like lack of control over things. And what happened was I was just, you know, like I knew I wasn't feeling it. And then I got put on a couple of cases that I was just like, all right, forget this. Like, <laughs> I'm done. So, but the thing was, I was on a, um, a tier two visa. So with tier two visas, you can't just kind of jump around. Sure. So uh, I probably had like a nine month lead time where I was trying to get out and look, looking for stuff, but like make, trying to make sure I, like, I picked the right thing. And it wasn't necessarily an industry role. Like the way I started looking was I kind of like was going from what are my interests and then sort of narrowing things down. Mm, yeah, that's it's interesting. I mean, so many things that you've just said resonate with the conversations we have on a daily basis with people that were either trying to place into consulting or, or, mm. or moving out of. And I think that variety piece is definitely yeah, the number one thing I think that attracts people to consulting. But at the same time, as you mentioned, you also get lumped on projects that you sometimes have no interest in and and often that can be the catalyst to, to move and you've kind of gone on to do some incredible things which I'm looking forward to talking about but over the course of all of those 15 plus projects across multiple countries at Bain mm. what for you were the biggest learnings that you you took away from those and, and I guess that have helped you in your career post-consulting? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess like the first thing is what good looks like, you know, how high standards are. Like I remember my introduction to, you know, to consulting was first case was in Dublin, you know, because after the financial crisis, you know, the, the banks in Dublin, took, well, everything in Ireland took a real hit, but uh, the banks in particular. So we were, it was a banking case and I flew in, I think it was like the Thursday or the Wednesday and the Thursday was, do you remember the Ash Cloud? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. What was that? Nine years ago yeah, or something was, like that. Yeah. That was caused crazy disruption, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. So for those who don't know, there was like a volcano erupted and it put all this ash in the air, you know, like, and so a cloud settled where also all flights were grounded for like two weeks or something. I think it was or a week. So in order to get home, what we did was we booked a, a taxi to take us to the south of Ireland and then a ferry to Wales. And then we drove in a taxi from Wales to, you know, to London. And so it was my second day on the case and like we're getting into this this big kind of minivan. I'm having to take one of the uncomfortable seats like facing away from the driver. And my, my supervisor is explaining to me all this Excel stuff he wants me to do. And I'm like kind of nodding my head. And then like I sit down expecting, you know, like to just kind of chill out for a bit. And he goes, no, no, Ben, like I meant now. Really? So I had to like, while we're going down these like kind of windy things, you know, like these windy roads and, you know, towards Southern Ireland, like do Excel modeling and stuff, oh, okay. you know? And like, it just kind of showed me that at the highest level, there are like just super high, you know, expectations. And like that goes throughout, you know, my time at Bain. So if you're going to do something, do it right. But what right means is like significantly higher than I think in a lot of other places. So what it led for me to do is at least I learned like how to hold myself to a standard, even if it's not fair to expect everybody else to be at that because not everybody wanted to go to Bain, you know, and you have to, or McKinsey or whatever. And you have to like kind of, you know, appreciate that. I think the second big thing is like, how to be organized, right? Like, so how to organize your thoughts, how to organize your day, how to organize your work. It's like that type of clarity of mission, of thought, of communication. And that really helps once you get out and you manage people. Mm -hmm. Because so much of where management goes wrong is like, if you're asking people to do stuff that you don't have clear in your head, and then you communicate to them and then they go off piece. So it's just having that constant clarity and then being able to communicate that is and you know Bain like or I, I'm gonna just keep saying Bain in place of management because I think that's all I know but I think they really drill that into you mm -hmm. like be very clear with you know with your work with your because you're typically on a six-week project or eight-week project or ten-week project so every single hour is precious and can't be wasted so you need to be organized and you need to kind of know what's going on and then I think the third thing is like and this is kind of underrated is how to be comfortable at all like levels. So both with super senior people and with super junior people, you know, because if you're say a mid-level consultant, you're in the room with the execs sometimes, like maybe in a steer co or some kind of meeting, you're not talking, yeah. but you're in the meeting, but then your maybe your client's interactions are with mid-level or junior people, or you have a junior analyst. So you need to be able to kind of communicate with all people and be comfortable with people. And one of the things I see, with, particularly with people in, say, startups who are super young and haven't had that is when they get in the room with a more senior person, they kind of lock up yeah. and their communication starts faltering and stuff. And I think maybe it's a function in a place like Bain where everybody's Oxbridge too. So they, they have that natural arrogance that comes from always being kind of told that they're the best, you know, uh, you know it may well be, I mean, I don't know, but I think that certainly within, you know, within management consulting, the, the, or the, the kind of top level management consulting, the exposure you get to execs and like senior partners and stuff then makes it that you're much more comfortable and you sort of feel like you belong mm -hmm. in a way. Like you have that, you develop that. I mean, I didn't need to develop the arrogance, you know, like I'm a New, I'm a New Yorker. So, but, <laughs> but like that type of cockiness, I think comes with it. Professional yeah. cockiness. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And I think anyone listening that is thinking about maybe starting their career, uh, th th those are the, some fantastic reasons to seriously give consulting uh, some thought because it, when I look at our client base now, majority of them are high growth businesses, either in fintechs or tech scale-ups. And the truth is a lot of the ex-consultants, well, they're the people that our clients are asking us for, but also they're the ones that typically seem to progress the quickest if they have the entrepreneurialism and, and the other execution focus and all the things that are also required. But there is something about the, those transferable skills that I think are very, very useful. No, that's, that's really interesting. So I guess given all of that and, and all the good things you took out of the career as a consultant, if you were to look back and to have a word with your 21-year-old self, would you, would you do it all again? Yeah, I mean, so like my big thing is I don't believe in counterfactuals, which is like, I think if I were in a bad situation right now, you know, maybe I would kind of reflect, but it's all good. You know what I mean? Like, and I also was kind of blessed that because I had 
this work visa thing. I didn't actually start working in Bain until I was 27. So, because I did a master's and then I was like nightclub promoting in Madrid and Pacha for about a year. You know, for a year. <laughs> is that where the salsa came in? No, the salsa came in before. Salsa's <laughs> from New York, so it's also like I picked up a while ago. I mean, so starting at 27 was actually a real blessing because I had gotten so much fun out of my system that like I was prepared to kind of be working, you know, in Dublin 55 hours a week. What I would say to anybody who's like 21 or 22 is like, don't rush, you know, like if you still feel like you have a degree of like fun you want to get out of your system, going to a super high demanding job, you know, out the gate is, is not, you know, take another gap year or something like that, because I think you will regret, like when I met, I remember meeting 23 year olds or 24 year olds at Bain and they may have well been 35 already because like what I was just talking about, about being comfortable at all levels, like if you're going to be put in front of a high level exec at 23, you kind of have to act the part. Mm. So I think it forces a degree of professionalism that kind of robs you of a bit of youth. Yeah. And maybe that works for some people. It certainly didn't work for me. But yeah, Matt, look, I, but beyond the lifestyle stuff, the job helped me get more things. I met a lot of like a lot of my good friends to this day, met a lot of people who have helped me get stuff later on. The name opens up doors. You know, when I say Bane, people are like, ooh, okay. You know, like... I don't look out, you know, I remember when I left, it was kind of bittersweet where I was like, oh, I'm going to get my life back to a certain extent. But equally, like it was, it was a great job. Mm. You know? Yeah, definitely. I, you just said something there, I guess the, the nightclub promotion thing I'm intrigued by. Do you yeah. think the entrepreneurial stuff you've gone on to do, those extra experiences, the slightly, slightly different life experiences have helped you in your career? Yeah, I wouldn't just say it's nightclub promoting. What I would say and we could, you know, we're obviously going to talk about some of this stuff later, but I think EQ is the most important thing in a managerial job, right? Like if you're at a hedge fund, it's being good with numbers and, you know, making good bets and stuff. And I think a lot of what e- good EQ comes from is like being exposed to lots of different people and like how, you know, how are you both persuasive but also flexible where you're not always trying to, you know, impose your will on stuff. So like I'm from New York, but I went to uni in Texas. Like, I, you know, I, I've lived in Japan. I've lived in Spain. Like, I, you know, I've lived here. Like I've been exposed and I have a natural curiosity for people. Like I would say that's kind of um, my spark is people. Yeah, yeah. And, which know, I'm very similar. So yeah, I totally yeah, yeah. relate to that. So if you're driven by that kind of extroversion, I mean, like I didn't really learn anything from club promoting. Club promoting was kind of like a natural thing that, you yeah. know, like I met my wife on the tube, you know, awesome. like it's like, all of this stuff is just a thorough line yeah. of like being comfortable with people. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, like one of the things that I would notice in Bain was, was that a lot of these people, you know, having gone to super elite universities and public school before that and stuff, you know, they were quite cloistered with people like them. And that what that meant was like was sometimes they struggled with certain clients who were a bit less like them or something yeah. like that. And, and not to say that they didn't do a good job because they, you know, they definitely did. But I think just having exposure to a lot of people and like loving people, yeah. you know, all sorts of people is I think like helps you a lot in your career. And I think that's brilliant advice for, for anyone. I mean, we see a lot of people and not to, I, I guess technically probably are millennials, but Gen Z is a millennial. There are a lot of people that are, or find those sorts of social settings a lot harder despite being geniuses and all this sort of stuff. And I think there's so much to be said for just exposing yourself and talking to people and creating conversation and putting yourself out of your comfort zone. It's really funny you say that, man. Like one of the things, and we, yeah, you know, we could talk about, but one of the things that I've noticed probably over the last two years as Gen Z has really entered the workforce and I've had them on my teams, right? Because startups are just younger, but it's the degree of social anxiety you see from people. Like the way you as a manager have to be sensitive to that anxiety, how you give feedback, but also just like how generally they socialize with each other and stuff. It's, I think there has been, I don't know if it's driven by social media and tech, like I, I, I genuinely don't know what it is, but there has been a step change where the levels of anxiety and panic attacks and just general mental health things that I've had to kind of deal with as a manager. And I've just kind of seen and heard anecdotally, it's, there has been a difference. And so I think that even more so now, someone who doesn't have that will probably stand out. Yeah, absolutely. No, interesting. Well, that's that's possibly something we can talk about yeah. a little bit later because it's a, it's a massive topic. But I want to get onto your career in, in, in fintech and tech. So you, you kind of moved on from Bain, joined WorldPay, which mm-hmm. was a super exciting business uh, at the time in a, a strategic product development uh, role. So how did that role come about? And for you, what were the, the kind of biggest differences for you from, from your consulting career into... Uh, yeah. I guess an industry role. Yeah, for sure. So I think the way I, the way I got into that job actually was 
one of my big intellectual passions is urban policy, like New York, you know, like how do you grow the economy of the city without gentrifying too much and throwing people out of their communities and stuff? Because New York struggles with that, right? And so I, I had really, I was going down this path of like looking at jobs in urban policy and I like was given actually probably close to my dream job and I had to turn it down because I was close to a tier one visa. I was like six months away. So I was offered the role of, VP of Strategic Planning for the New York City Economic Development Corporation. Wow. Which, like, had it come two years before yeah. or three years after. But also, most of my closest friends are back in Spain. Wow. And I was like, oh, I'm not done. Like, I, I, we have stags, we have weddings. You know, we were just kind of hitting that age. So I was like, all right, like, I know I'm going to have to stay in London for a bit. So what type of job, like I need a job that will give me growth potential, right? So I think that when you're leaving something that's like a safe bet, a sure bet, like management consulting or banking, so it's like you need something that you can then sell afterwards where you're not pigeonholed doing one thing or another. And WorldPay had been a client of Bain's because, you know, Bain Cap and Advent, the PE firms own them. And Bain Cap, I think, puts a lot of projects towards Bain. So I had worked for two, on two, two projects with them. And a bunch of Bain staff had moved over into leadership roles right. at WorldPay. So I said, you know, and there was all, like, they were growing like crazy. They were trying to prep for their IPO. So they needed, you know, more bodies who, you know, could get stuff done. So the ex-partner on the case had gone over there to be the CMO, CPO for e-com, which was like the exciting, fast-growing bit. And so, like, I had worked with the exec team before. I liked them. I was going to be working within a Bain team structure to the extent that I, I knew the guy and tech, tech can always be sold, right? Like I knew it was the type of job that like I'd be able to use it to get other things. Whereas like if I'd gone to say some kind of corporate, it would be much more difficult because you automatically are then in that industry. Whereas tech doesn't mean anything, right? It could be anything. Yeah. So I took it and the role was like kind of undefined. I think it was basically just get stuff done ahead of the IPO. And, you know, so I did that. So, and I guess like the biggest differences were... You know, first of all, the pace, like thing about management consulting is like what you start on a Monday by Friday looks totally different. Yeah. And it feels like you've crammed a hundred hours into, you know, and sometimes you, you've done you probably have, hours, yeah. <laughs> but like when you don't have this project based drumbeat, everything is just slower and calmer. So things you'll have a meeting and then someone says, okay, the next meeting will be in three weeks. Whereas like in Bain, the meeting would be 8am the next day or 2pm the next day. Did so that frustrate you at the time? Um, I think it, it depends on how badly I needed to get something yeah. done. You Maybe know? a welcome change of pace. I think also one of the dirty secrets of management consulting is, you know, they're trying to prove their value to the client, right? So they're almost doing work for its own sake, or they're kind of like iterating things probably a bit too much, actually. So a lot of the time, the meetings you'd be going to in management consulting were, were meetings for their own sake or to kind of tighten stuff that didn't, you know, so I like, I, I was cool with it. I think also one of the big changes from management consulting is like, what your outputs become. Yeah. So I think when you're in, you know, when you're a consultant, it's like your output is either Excel or PowerPoint. Even when you're more senior, you're still kind of executing on it to some degree or another. I think at some point you stop doing yeah. it, but it takes a while. Whereas like, you know, my, my, at my level, it automatic, it kind of shifted to the output. It was like what other people were doing. And it was me kind of coaxing the process. And if people were doing things right, or I achieved like a result between different stakeholders, that was my, my victory. So it became much more of like managing and influencing, yeah. which actually plays more to my skills. Like I'm not actually good at doing stuff. <laughs> I'm good at kind of like understanding what needs to be done and getting smart people to do it. Got know? it, got it. That's, I mean, that's how I sell it. And you're being a, a little modest, but. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, I think also like one of the cool things was exposure to a lot of different functions. So like when you're, in management consulting, you're on one work stream, right? So like, or even if you're on a couple of, you know, work streams, you can't go deep on any of them because you're, you know, you're trying to, you know, stay on top. Whereas, you know, like at WorldPay, I was with the product team, the marketing team, the sales team, the strategy team. Like I, I just had exposure to all of these different functions. And it was just cool understanding like how a full business works because you don't get that view. You're, it's very top down when you're in management consulting. So this was much more kind of not even bottom up. It was kind of sideways which I thought was quite cool. I think the biggest thing is like, it showed me the importance of stakeholder management. So I would argue management consulting is very meritocratic and like very, while there's probably a bit of politics or whatever, it's the work is the work. Whereas in companies, whether it's startups or corporates or whatever, it's like, there's a lot of stakeholder management. So you need to get a lot of people to different people to move in this, the same direction. You need to make sure meetings run really smoothly. You need to keep a lot of different people happy. 
And you also kind of have to manage your reputation in kind of surprising ways. Like, you know, in a place like WorldPay, there were a lot of very senior people, all of whom, you know, were like trying to make their money, right? Like the IPO was going to get a lot of people and got a lot of people very rich. So you kind of had to keep a lot of people with egos and, you know, a lot of experience happy. And that's like, again, that's EQ. It's a different type of EQ. But I definitely did not really learn that in management consulting because management consulting is much more closed off. Like, I think you get exposure to those type of clients when you're more senior. So I hadn't, you know, because I left kind of a year post MBA. So like WorldPay was like my real, almost like finishing school for how to, how to do stakeholder management and stuff. Uh, that's really interesting. And it's such a fascinating time pre-IPA. And I guess you went from, from one extreme to the other. So you went to Pocket, which was a you know, much earlier stage business. Can you tell our listeners a bit about it? Because it's a, it's a business that I think when we first met, you had recently joined. Uh, it's, it's, doing, it's done some incredible things. So tell us a bit about that and why you made that move. Yeah, so Pocket is... It's, it, it's not even a startup anymore. It's probably been around, you know, four or five years. It's a uh, it's a digital bank similar to Monzo or Revolut or Mo, you know Moniz N26, but it's f- always been focused on the financially excluded. So about seven million people in the UK lack access to t- traditional banking because they don't have the document requirements or they've had debt issues or something like that. So Pocket is a simple to sign up for, simple to use digital banking account to, you know, to enable people who have been excluded from the traditional financial system to, to go out, shop online where they can make, you know, save a lot of money versus, you know, the high street and just generally kind of live their, their financial lives. Um, so I got into it because a friend of mine who has now set up a very successful company called Papier, um, yeah, he's, a, he's yeah. a good friend of mine from Bain Tamor. When he was in the process of kind of setting up Papier, he went on like a young CEO entrepreneur round trip where he just met a lot of um, young CEOs and founders. And he had mentioned to me that he met Viraj, the founder of Pocket. And I just, you know, because I had always been interested in urban policy and public policy, I liked the social impact Mm -hmm. angle of what Pocket was doing. So I met Viraj and... I liked the notion of being able to build something that had all of these benefits and like it could go in so many different directions. You could do remittances, you could do a credit product, like there was just so many different things you could do. And I also, you know, quite frankly liked, I mean, I met him just to kind of find out more about the company. Like I wasn't job hunting or anything. And then he said, hey, I'm look, I'm interviewing for CLO roles. Would you be interested? And then to me, I'd only been working five years and change. So that represented like kind of like a big jump. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that, that's cool. Like if I could kind of shortcut yeah, you know, the jump, I will. And like working for a company whose mission I really respect. And so then also it was like, I think there were 12 employees or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. For, you know, I was kind of like the first series A like hire. So Amazing. I just thought like, you know, oh, that'd be cool, you know, kind of get in on, on something and really kind of shape it. Yeah. That's awesome. So I guess you've already alluded a bit to, to my next question, which was going to be around how the role came about and the interview process. But what was that like, given that you'd never been a CEO before? How did you approach that that process? Did you, did, were there different things you have to think about? Did, were there kind of gaps that you were concerned about? No, yes and no. I mean, I think because one of the things, the underrated things about, you know, particularly early stage startups is typically the CEO has never been a CEO before. Yeah, true. <laughs> so I think what they're looking for, particularly in an early stage COO, like it varies because the COO as a role doesn't mean anything, right? Like in some companies, it's someone who's purely, purely, purely operational, like, or operations. It's like making things kind of tick along and they have like real subject matter expertise. Other times it's just someone who kind of like more in my case, like just oversees stuff and grow stuff and make sure everything is operating like at a business level. So one of the, the things that I've always been very firm about in interviews is like what my skills aren't because you never want to get into a role having kind of either not had the right idea of what you were getting into or having sold yourself as somebody who could do something and then you get in and you're kind of trapped in something you don't like so i was i I remember saying to him you know in the early on in the process like if you want an operational person like i'm definitely the guy but operations is not something either i'm interested in or i've done or something so i think the interview was like a lot of it is personality fit because if you're coming to be like the right hand man or right hand person or the um, kind of like the doer to a certain yeah. extent, like I think it's more that they just want to make sure that, you know, you guys get on. And then I think there were a lot of questions about like, how would I handle certain situations that they'd already seen? Right. Because I think it was just like, you know, how do you think on your feet? Like, how would you do things? And then there was a, there was an extra component of like what from my previous experience could I say that was like operational and Mm -hmm. stuff. And I had had like, 
a lot of the cases I had done in Bain were very client heavy. So okay. I had done some element of like implementation stuff and then WorldPay was all yeah. you know, implementation. So I think a lot of it is, it's much more, it was much more soft skills at the time. Got it. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And I think there's a lot of people listening who will work in strategy or, or work in industry and Almost on a daily basis, we get people because we do a lot of COO search looking to make that move. So it's always nice to hear a story of someone that's made it and the sorts of things to think about. So you spent almost three years there as a as, as COO, must have lots of stories to tell. When you look back at your time at Pocket, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned and perhaps some of the biggest challenges that you overcame? Yeah, I mean, so the learnings, like one was like what leadership's role is, right? So I think in a startup or maybe in a bigger company too, but the leadership's role is the company's success, which is a function of a bunch of things, right? It's like product market fit. It's a clear strategy, but then it's also strong execution. So like as a leader, the most important thing you could be doing is communicating that strategy making sure everybody understands the priorities and then keeping people motivated, right? Because ultimately you're not going to be doing all that stuff, but you kind of need to be making sure that, you know, the team is. And then it's like setting up all of the, the, the touch points where you repeat the message, you have a lot of transparency about performance and priorities, and you like, you, you just have to constantly figure out ways to keep people happy. Like, I think that a lot of uh, leadership in startups is just making sure that people are happy rather than kind of making sure you're happy, you know? I think it's, like also man like it's so important to have good people in place and like how hard you should push to keep them happy like i i would see you know i would hire one subject matter expert and they would just be able to transform say customer service or they would be able to transform some elements of compliance or something and you're like oh wow like getting good people in really does have that that kind of multiplier effect i think also it's um you should always try to stick to the basics first right so under if you're like a probably more on the B2C side, but even B2B side, like understand your funnel. Because if you understand your funnel from like trying to get customers all the way down to customers using your product, you'll understand like where there are things going wrong. And then that's where you should be putting, you know, your energies. And then like, yeah, if you just kind of nail the funnel for the first year, I think you then nail the business. And then I guess like another thing is execution is key. Like the difference between a company that succeeds and a company that doesn't maybe in the same industry isn't that like one idea was better than the other. It's that they executed better. So what that mean, means is you need to plan for everything and make sure everybody gets stuck in, but you just always need to be making sure that like you're executing on the ideas, right? Because the ideas are only as good as like, you know, the execution. Tasty. So I think, look, the challenge, the challenge is there's that cliche that I've heard a lot of people say, but it's true. It's like being in a startup is, flying an airplane while building it at the same time, you know, because fundamentally you don't have a team in place. You don't have like all of the funding. You don't really have a product market match. So you're trying to do all that at the same time as kind of like running the business and stuff. So you have limited resources, you know, you have limited know-how a lot of the time, but you have customers and you have complexity. So that's like, that's tough. I think a lot of the challenges are also... You always have to figure out like inelegant solutions to things like you don't have the full resources and the way you guys are set up, it's not going to necessarily be conducive to kind of doing things exactly the way you want. So you're always having to figure out like trade offs or how do we get it out to market? Maybe it won't be perfect. It'll be an MVP, you know, so you're, you're, you're constantly trying to weigh the pros and cons of like how to get something done. I think like you're always going to lack certain key functions. Like one of the things that I found that nearly all startups lack is a strong people function and people function is key, but most founders, I, I think they don't prioritize it until way later. So a lot of kind of cultural issues bubble up, you know, yeah, they could be nipped in the bud if you had the right people in place to from the beginning. And that's one piece of advice I would give is make sure you get your culture right early. And then I think it's also, it's like prioritization, which is there's always going to be this tension between revenue generation versus fixing stuff that's going wrong, right? So a CEO typically is always going to want to be doing more things to make more money, even if the original things aren't necessarily working the way they should. And I think the role of the CEO is trying to, or at least the way I interpret it sometimes was trying to make those balances of like, yeah, I mean, the commercial imperatives are always there, but also listen to a bunch of other people on the team where they're like, no, no, like we're running too fast. You know, we need to, you know, fix some of these things. And, you know, it's, that's a really difficult one because it's tied to fundraising. Yeah. You know, so, you know, managing that is, is tough. Yeah. And I, I want to come on to, to, to working with VCs because I think that's something that people will be definitely very interested in. But coming on to now, you're, you're MD of one of the UK's 
top 10 fastest growing tech firms in Poland. So tell us a bit about Pollen. What attracted you and, and what does the typical day look like for you now? Yeah, I mean, so what attracted me was, first of all, the growth, right? It's been growing like crazy. And I think when I met the founder, he reminds me or he struck me as like what a typical founder is like he had started you know doing stuff at 16 you know like real kind of hustler entrepreneur and it's like those are the sort of people you want to be following to a certain extent if you're not going to be an entrepreneur yourself and i think that there were very strong ideas about culture and where we were trying to go and i think again like one of the things that always attracts me is white space so like the opportunity to grow the opportunity to make a role my own and this role hadn't existed before because the company has changed quite a bit. Even when I came in, the role was a product line role rather than a geo role. But as we've kind of evolved, it's become this geo thing. So I just liked the notion of, oh, this is brand new. I could, I could make the most out of it because it's much easier, I think, to for me at least, to do my own thing rather than kind of follow the blueprint of something else. A typical day for me is it's very people heavy, right? So I start off my day, we have a, a bunch of KPI emails that come about, you know, how, how we're doing. I, I'll then sometimes ask different team members questions about that. And then it's just generally one-to-ones or functional meetings or sometimes kind of like strategic projects, like, you know, how it's going on. But the way I interpret my role is basically working with the founders to kind of articulate what's the strategy for the region, what numbers do we try, you know, have to try to hit, and then break that down into kind of digestible strategic chunks for everybody on the team and then just kind of push the team towards that and then also help them you know clear roadblocks or kind of you know just generally kind of you know advance stuff and then get the numbers in place to track it right so i uh, my job is i would is very very people heavy which is awesome awesome definitely sounds like a place to your strengths um and you you alluded to, to sort of working with um, investment backed businesses. So Poland's raised about twenty eight million. Am I right in thinking? Yeah, it's raised a lot of money. Yeah. So and backed by some of the leading VCs. What's it like for you working with VCs uh, and the pressures that come with that? How do you handle that? I mean, so Pocket had some VCs as well. I think it reminds me a lot of WorldPay, right? So WorldPay's owners were two private equity companies who we're trying to make money, right? Yeah. So I think same, similar to VCs, it's like there are aggressive numbers to, to be hit, there's aggressive strategy. Everybody's pointed in that direction. And I think it's also, there's just a lot of big priorities at the same time, right? And like, you can't sort of say, now nah, you know what? I think we're just gonna focus on this or that. It's like kind of like, you just gotta get it all done, right? So I think VC versus PE or whatever, I think whenever there's someone expecting a massive return from you, like you just have that, it's not even a pressure, you just have that knowledge that you, you need to kind of make it happen, mm-hmm. right? So I think in some ways it just gives you this clarity, right? Yeah. Like I think in my role now, I'm much less visible to the, to the VCs and vice versa. So in Pocket, I was like the other director. So I was at all the board meetings, I dealt with the board quite a bit, you know, who were the, our investors. And so there was a lot of just explaining to them what was going on and stuff like I think maybe that, that that's just the other distinction is you, you're, you just constantly have to be explaining you know what's going on but I'm a bit further removed from it but it doesn't feel any different to me than uh than world pay yeah so you're pretty pretty used to it now yeah. um you we've talked a lot about people and the importance of it and I guess part of that is is linked to building great teams and I know that you've managed uh, different sized teams at both Pocket and Pollen. So from your experience, what are the biggest challenges that come with with growing a team? Um, and as a leader, what are some of the sort of key skills that you need to think about when you're building high performing teams, which is obviously something that we kind of focus on on a day-to-day basis trying to help our clients do? Yeah, for sure. So I think the challenges are like the first thing is the value prop, right? Mm-hmm. So like when you're selling a startup, the salaries and the stability is lower. Right. So if someone has a family or someone's accustomed to making X amount, like that's a big jump for them. So it might not necessarily be attractive, you know, attractive. So what you're probably going to be getting more often than not is younger, more inexperienced people. Right. Which is that requires more monitoring at all times. Trajectories. Right. So one of the things, again, within the value prop that you're trying to sell is like, here's where you're going to end up. Right. You do this for X amount of time. You then do. But in a startup, like no one knows, right? So you're selling kind of the potential, but you actually have no idea. I mean, the role that they might come in to do might not be the role that they're going to be doing in six months or nine months. So that, you know, that, that's, that's a challenge. And then I think like the lack of middle management 
means that you you know you have a, again you have a lot of junior people who might not be as professionally mature you know emotionally so there can be a lot of like infighting or like people are just kind of left on their own and they, they they might not know how to kind of you know like get out of certain you know problems they're in or something like that so it's tough because you have to therefore as an exec be both an exec and a manager at the same time and kind of context switching you know dependent so i think like what you need you need strong recruitment skills right like you need high energy you need to be the sort of person that they would want to work with and for, right? So, like, really get that kind of excitement. I think you need, again, strong communication skills. Like, you need with the team, for the team to constantly be focused on the stuff that will be driving the most value. And they need to be able to articulate why they're doing it and stuff. Um, so you need to constantly... And it's not just, like, one of the things I've learned is you have to repeat yourself over and over and over again. Because people, it just people develop tunnel vision with their BAU and you just have to constantly repeat yourself. I think also like EQ, you know, you, I, I mentioned it before, you know, you need to talk to and like talk to manage different people the way they want to be managed yeah. and, and what's most conducive to getting the best out of them, yeah. not the way you want to do stuff. So like when at Pocket, I had a team that comprised like, it was probably almost 50 people and it was like lots of different functions. So the way I was going to talk to the one, uh, you know, the woman on my team who was an ex-band consultant also was fundamentally different than I was the way I was going to talk to the compliance people or, you know, the BI people or something like that. So you really have to be empathetic and trying to figure out how to how to do things the way other people want it, rather than kind of like very directive. Like this is what you're going to be doing. I think you have to know how to like step in and solve issues between teams. Like you're, I find that a lot of the time I'm almost like a marriage counselor. You know, like I'm hearing this from this side, I'm hearing that from that side. You know. I think one of the key things, again, with this EQ piece is, and Bain, they used to talk about this a lot, is you can either be as a manager or a leader or whatever, a stress absorber or a stress creator. I like that. Right? Mm. So stress creators are what they say where, you know, you're, you're stressed about something so you pass that down to your team and then your team freaks out. Or you can be the stress absorber where maybe your company's having funding problems or maybe you're not hitting the numbers or whatever, but you need to be quite chill and calm and kind of make the, the team feel that Definitely. as well. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's like just always doing that. And then I think, you know, you just need to be able to establish trust, right? Mm. And then I think like, again, for building teams, like one of the other big things is like uh, professional development. So Bain is a mate, like Bain's always been voted, I think the, like the best company in the world to work for. That and then we're in Google, they kind of go back and forth. And one of the, I think the big things is, they're very big on professional development. So like giving you a skill set, you know, teaching you things, giving you opportunities to constantly be growing. And so I think that one of the things you should always be doing with your team is like figuring out what they want to get out of this role or what they can get out of this role and then like try to help them with it. So jobs should always be a quid pro quo where like one of my missions is that people leave working for me better for having done it because that's what's happened to me in all my steps. So it's like, not just extracting knowledge or, you know, effort and kind of leaving them by the wayside. It's like, well, how can we build you up? Is it training courses? Is it you want exposure to a different function? Yeah. Do you want me to help you with your CV? You know, that type of stuff. But I think that that's like super important because if you could kind of get everybody motivated and keen and like knowing what they're doing, then the team kind of runs itself to Totally. Them. Yeah. And I think it's really refreshing. And all the, the best clients we have and the people that have built the most successful teams invest in their people and as a result you get tons of loyalty and trust back and people tend to work harder as a result so I, I, could, I couldn't agree with that more mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end there's a couple, couple more questions Ben there are a lot of people that will be listening to this that want to make the moves that you've made whether it's into fintech or tech and, and, and scale ups or be a COO have you got some tips for anyone that's at this that, maybe that point of career maybe they're a consultant looking to get into industry or just generally make a switch are there any kind of career tips you'd have for anyone listening that might need a bit of extra inspiration right now so i think career tips like more generally um is i think you got to start from knowing yourself like so be honest with yourself about what your skill set is like what you like what you don't like and like you know don't do something because it's like it's cool like you should always start from from passion so like I, I noticed you know because i got into pocket i fintech wasn't even a thing then i hadn't even heard the expression and i it kind of dawned on me that I was in this thing when I started getting like consultant or like friends of consultant requests to kind of have coffees with me. And like what I would kind of say is like, if you're trying to get into FinTech now, it's kind of like people who move into a neighborhood, like way after the neighborhood's kind of gentrified, like, you know, like it's like someone trying to move to Dawson now, which is fine, but it's like, 
the houses are going to be way more expensive because you kind of missed that, that, that initial thing. So don't just do something because you think you should be or you think it's cool. Like start from a point of both passion, but also realism about what your skill set is. You know, so be really self-aware. And then don't just jump at the first thing, like have as many coffee chats or like talk to as many people as possible. And don't be afraid to be like a bit of a LinkedIn stalker. Like I think LinkedIn is probably the only social media channel I would like recommend being a stalker where if you see someone who's got a cool role, just write them directly, right? Or look at their profile, look at who people, similar people are, and then talk to those people or try to write those people. But try to develop a view of like, of what you think is out there rather than just kind of jumping at the first thing. And then I guess it's also, it's like, you know, always be, you know, just kind of honest with yourself, you know? Like, I think that a lot of people are trying to just shoehorn themselves into stuff, totally about, you know, like without really thinking about what, you know, what it is that they want to be doing. Yeah, and, and, you know, and if, I think if you do all that stuff, if you just, if you take, a, you know, enough time, you talk to enough people and you kind of progress from what, you know, where you think you can, you know, get in where you fit in, not like like shoehorning yourself, you should, you should be all right. That's great advice. When you're interviewing people, are there any particular things that you always look for or any, uh, I guess, any tips maybe for somebody that might land in front of you uh, in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have a bias towards enthusiasm. Right, like, because I'm extroverted, and because that's kind of my personality, I, and like, and it is an American versus English thing. Like, I see it when I've managed American teams; we're just naturally more kind of like you know high energy in that regard. But I think like, I really look for ownership. So, someone who, the way they talk or, or from their professional experience, they've shown that they've kind of owned stuff from start to finish, rather than just kind of been like one part of a much larger chain. I think emotional resilience is really important, and that's like that's a tough one to kind of find in an interview, but. You want to find someone who you seem who seems like they can roll with the punches because one of the things about consulting um, startups is like it's a roller coaster, right? In a given day, you might get some good news and then find out it's actually bad news or bad news that actually is good. So you just need someone who's quite like emotionally stable. And again, I, you know, the other thing is like flexibility. Like you were talking about management consultants being you know desired in startups. I think it's because we can get stuck into anything, right? Like we're not function subject matter experts. So being able to kind of get stuck into a lot of different things and being cool doing that stuff. And then I think it's also just hunger, man. Like someone who real like really wants to be doing the role or really wants to be making making something of themselves. Like I will naturally gravitate towards people who have a chip on their shoulder or someone to prove or just like they're super ambitious, right? And again, not all of these things immediately come out in interviews, but a lot of that stuff does. But you can see yeah. it. Yeah, I think you can definitely see that. No, that's that's really, really, really interesting insights. Well, we're getting to our wrap-up questions, yeah. Ben. And thank you so much for being such, such an awesome guest. I'd be remiss of me not to talk to you a bit about mentorship itself. Um, it's played an important role in my career, and I'm a big believer in it. So so have you had any particular mentors throughout your career? Uh, less than my career. Like, I would say, uh, as a person, it's my parents, you know, like, which... Hopefully a lot of people can say the same thing. You know, like I think my parents are really good examples of just how to be as people, right? I had a, a slightly left of center mentor for about, you know, uh, who became almost like a surrogate grandmother to me for about 15 years. She she passed away like 96 a, oh, yeah, a few months ago. No, but she was 96. Yeah, she, had, yeah. she lived a really long life. So she was a, a patient of my father's and she had been one of, I think, if not the first female oil executive in the US. Wow. And she had just had this crazy career. And because one of my majors in uni was Japanese, she had had a very strong relationship with Japan or something. So she ended up becoming like a mentor, but also more like, like kind of like a grandmother, but and just kind of like teaching me how to be a bit of an adult. So wow. it was less professional. She guided me towards the grad school I went to, but professionally less so because by the time I really started working, she, you know, she'd been getting up there in, in age. I think quite frankly, like, uh, you know, so I, there are two other types of professional mentors, one who kind of take you with them wherever they go. And I don't think I, ne I necessarily have that type of personality. Like I think I'm much more like I prefer to do my own things. Yeah. So people probably sense that and they don't, I mean, I had that at WorldPay, but beyond that, like I haven't had that. But I'd say where I've learned most professionally is just from my friends. Yeah. Like I have a, you know, Bain in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, because we're talking about the UK, like most of my, my, my UK friends are Bain people and nearly all of them are like founders of very successful companies here or something similar. So just like learning from my friends has kind of like really helped, you know, helped me professionally, but I wouldn't say I've had someone above me 
who kind of gives me that type of advice. And that's, I don't think that's fine. Like I, I'm the same. I have, I have different mentors in different sort of areas of my life. And I think that's the point is mentorship means different things to different people, but, and you can, you can, you can definitely get it from your friends. I think, I think that's a, a very good sign. Awesome. And I guess looking forward, Ben, what's the, what are the next 12 months have in store for, for you sort of personally and professionally? Any more salsa, salsa competitions perhaps? No, I mean, uh, next 12 months, I think professionally it's, we have a lot of really aggressive goals, you know, within, you know, Pollen. Like, you know, we've been the seventh fastest growing company in the UK two years in a row. I wasn't part of, the, I can't take any credit for it, but we've set a lot of targets to kind of double again, right? So that that's, the, you know, the targets are always double or 2.5x or something like that. So there's that. And I think just, you know, personally, it's just, just keep living life, man. Like I try, I try not to, I'm not particularly type A and I find that the more you try to like set all these crazy goals or like really kind of make sense of the chaos that is kind of, you know, realities that you end up then just disappointing yourself. So just kind of like rolling with the punches. Love yeah. that. Love that. Awesome. Um, and final question for any of our listeners that are thinking about making a career move, what kind of one final piece of advice would you give them before they do? Yeah, I mean, so this is, and I think this is like almost like kind of life advice. It's something like I really, really strongly believe in, which is you got to work out what's most important to you. So like for some people, it's money. For other people, it's prestige. For other people, it's like it's lifestyle. Like you need to work out what really makes you tick and like not do stuff just because you think you should, but because you want to. So for me, I always try to maximize for the balance of stuff. Like so a job that pays, you know, well to enable me to live a lifestyle, but then gives me enough lifestyle that I can actually enjoy it and gives me enough intellectual stimulation, but isn't like, I'm not a fan of like too much intensity. So I'm like, I'm not trying to be burned out or anything like that. So I'm always trying to maximize for that balance. Other people who work in private equity don't, <laughs> you know, but a lot of those guys are super happy because they don't care as much about lifestyle. They care about presumably money and like the thrill of, you know, of doing that job, you know, God bless. I mean, that's not for me to, but I think like once you make that decision, you shouldn't second guess yourself or compare yourself to people. Like the most unhappy people I know, like in kind of my professional world or even personal, are the people who are always comparing themselves against other people. And ultimately you gotta live your own life. So be very self-aware, make decisions based on what feels right to you and then kind of like own that decision. Back yourself, I love that. Yeah, Yeah. I think like the more you look in sideways or up and down, whatever, you're just gonna make yourself miserable. Like. I know people a couple years younger than me who have made millions already. You know, I know people who are the, the founders of unicorns and are going to be exceedingly wealthy and, you know, they're flying around the world doing talks. God bless. I mean, like, I'm doing my thing and I'm happy. And yeah. I think that that's the important thing. Like, I think if the, the second you start second-guessing yourself based on what you're seeing from other people, you're just going to make yourself miserable. Totally. So, yeah. I think that is an amazing place to end this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for yeah, being for awesome 40-Minute sure, Mental, yeah. Ben, and we wish you all the best for the year ahead. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks so much. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40-Minute Mental, and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.